Welcome back to That's Ancient History and what is the first episode of season three. I'm so excited that we are here for the third season of this podcast already and I'm so pleased by everybody's reactions to the podcast so far. It is wonderful having you listening and engaging with all of this content and I'm so excited for today's episode because it is an interview with Natalie Haynes, a writer and broadcaster who you might recognise from her radio show on BBC4. Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics, which is very much in the vein of what we are here for on That's Ancient History. And I interview her in this episode about her second Greek myth retelling. So this is Natalie Haynes' third novel, all of which have classical themes. However, it was her second novel, The Children of Jocasta, that first retold a Greek myth in her style. It took the story of Oedipus and his wife slash mother, as we know from the myth, Jocasta, and uh, examined it from the lesser known female character's point of view. Her latest book, A Thousand Ships, however, is all about the Trojan War and all of the very many women whose lives were affected by this both mythological and historical event, although the characters themselves are those of myth. The voices we hear from in this novel range from Penelope, the Greek wife of Odysseus, to Hecabe, the Trojan wife of King Priam of Troy. Mortal women like these are joined in their laments by goddesses, muses and nymphs whose lives are equally affected by the events surrounding this catastrophic war. Through the accounts of these women, Natalie Haynes' A Thousand Ships gradually pieces together the events of this war, teaching us about the immortal women whose actions led to the war itself and about the mortal women whose lives were forever changed. The book is beautiful, emotive and an absolute must read if I do say so myself but talking to Natalie Haynes about the writing process and her journey through the classics and reading about women in myth just added a whole new layer of wonder and intrigue to the reading experience for me and I'm sure it will for you as well. Natalie Haynes is an absolutely fascinating woman herself and I hope that you will enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, let's hear from the author herself. Thank you so much for joining it's me. My pleasure. Um, this is your second Greek myth retelling. In fact, I had the honour of interviewing you about um, your previous book as well. Um, and it's the second book that retells a myth from a female perspective. Yes. And I was wondering what, why you think that's important to do that with these older traditional stories. I think it's important for a few reasons. The first is um, that their stories are as valid as anybody else. Um, and it is stupid to only tell half the story, um, which is what we do when we only tell the stories of mm. men. Um, I have probably read as many men's stories about men as I ever need to, which doesn't mean <laughs> I'm not going to read any more because sometimes it's a blinder and you go, yeah, I'm absolutely here for this extraordinary book yeah. of men doing men's stuff. Um, but there have been a bunch, haven't there? Yes. There have been a lot. So I feel like there's an, there's an element of me which is going, well, it's about time we told the other side of the story. What's well, the Chinese proverb that women hold up half the sky? Well, then I'm, I'm bored of just having one half. Yeah. Um, and the other element, I suppose, is that these stories always had women in. Mm. And then for a, an array of reasons, some of which are... Um, accidental and some of which are nefarious <laughs> we've lost them mm. we just lost the women from these stories mm -hmm. so if you look at the whole set of texts which make up um, 
the mid-cycle of the Trojan War, then we've lost everything except the Iliad and the Odyssey. We've lost yeah. the Cupria, we've lost the you know fall of Troy, mm. the what is it, Iliopersis, um, and the you know um, uh, Ethiopis and things like that. They they just lost. Mm. We've only got fragments of them. And some of those stories would have told us more about some of the men in the story, mm -hmm. and some of them told us more about some of the women. So the loss of the Ethiopis is particularly upsetting if you want to tell mm -hmm. the stories of women and people who aren't white, yeah. because of course it has the story of Penthesilea, the great Amazon warrior, yeah. and the story of Memnon, the great Ethiopian warrior. And you know sometimes classics gets accused of being mm. kind of pale, male, and stale, which cracks my heart. It must crack yours because Absolutely. classics belongs to all of us. Yes, and so it. It's horrendous that it should be, you know, seen as by anybody it should be perceived as being this, you know, white male yeah. elite subject. Um, and so it, it bothers me that those stories have been lost. And I think it's worth hunting around mm. the, you know, fragments of Quintus Manaeus yes. to find out about <laughs> Penthesilea. But I don't expect everyone to want to do that. So it's like, well, good, let's turn it into a novel. Yes, That's, this story has been told, uh -huh. and then we lost it. Yeah. And you know the same is true of like the Trojan women. It gets performed quite often. Yeah. Euripides, you know, fantastic yeah. play. And one of my favourites. Oh my god. So modern. I know, right? And Ditto, his Hecabe. Again, you saw Hecabe. Sometimes people call it. Um, you see it performed, you know, reasonably often. But if you're not much of a theatre goer, mm. there's no obligation to go. <laughs> then those stories again. If you if you only ever get a sort of. Greek a children's Greek mm. myth version of the Iliad in your childhood. Yeah. There probably isn't a children's Greek myth book of the Hecabe because children don't do massively well in that. Spoiler, spoiler. Yeah. But, you know, you can see the temptation is yeah. to take these stories and retell them for a, a reading audience rather than a viewing audience. Because, yeah. You know, why wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you, you, like, you did just make me think there. I'd be interested to hear your perspective in that case on whether you think this reputation that classics has gained is very much because of like more recent history than actually I ancient do. history. I absolutely do think that. I think it's an enormous um, source of sorrow to me mm. that the last sort of 200 years-ish of classicism mm -hmm. has made it seem... There are loads of incredible classicists who were not posh white men. Yes. <laughs> um, and there are incredible classicists now, yes. like um, Edith Hall and Henry Stead, Absolutely. who are putting those classicists, these incredible classicists of the last couple of hundred years, back into books, back onto the map, making sure that we all know that they're there. Mm. But yes, it is the case. It just is the case that way, way, way too much of classics has been kind of controlled by gatekeepers. I don't think doing it usually from a position of malice. Mm. Usually it's from a position of just not seeing things yeah. in any other way. You could see it when um, you read Annemie Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. Mm, absolutely. First translation of the Odyssey published by a woman, and uh, quite separately from that, you know, utterly brilliant. Yes. But seeing her de-gender terms, which yeah. you are just used to seeing, you know, you're just used to seeing the bit where Odysseus yeah. deals with those um, uh, collaborating slave women yes. uh, at the end of the Odyssey, and it's almost always translated, or was translated throughout the 20th century. Uh, yeah, they're translated yeah. as sluts or whatever. And both because, women and men have accepted that as well. Right, it's not just absolutely like, because, and the only when you know you actually go back to the Greek, mm. or in this instance, you get Emily Wilson to do that. <laughs> she is brilliant, um, and you see that it's just the word for slave with the female yeah. article, the female the, which tells it's female slaves. That's all it says, and we kind of go, oh yeah, actually, it completely changes the meaning. Yes. If Odysseus is killing the women because they've conspired against his wife that gives them some guilt yeah. and if you call them derogatory terms yeah. that's making that happen if you look at what the Greek says mm -hmm. it's much less excusing yeah. his behavior much less yeah. and so you realize that the text you're getting is distorted almost without people having thought about mm -hmm. it and that's quite aside from before you bring in anybody's actual intentional yeah. distortions so I think it's really a question of trying to 
I said, not exactly correct it, but maybe just trying to write the balance to just mm, say, yeah. here's another way of looking at it. Here's some other versions of these stories yeah. that you might have lost or that you might have missed. I kind of love the idea as well of novels like this um, and sort of just myth retellings in general is almost this accessible form of scholarship because yeah. I think they do broaden the, the, the discipline. They don't just provide entertainment. Absolutely. So I mean, classics doesn't just belong to people who went and studied Greek at school because yeah. <laughs> that limits it to like five state schools yes. plus private schools in the country and that's 7% of students oh my gosh, and I, I don't know. consider that acceptable. No. I think classics belongs to everybody yes. and so I don't mind how people get their classics. Mm. I genuinely don't mind if yeah. they read a novel or listen to a radio programme or watch a movie. I don't mind if the movie has The Rock in it. I hope it does. Um, <laughs> I don't mind if it's Disney Hercules, my actual literal favourite retelling of the Hercules story. When are they um, making a live adaptation of that? That's what I want to know they're adapting everything else. I'm here all day long for Disney Hercules, that's all I have to say on the matter. So um, I, I don't care how yeah. people find it, I genuinely don't, I just, this stuff belongs to them and I Agreed. want them to, they don't have to like it, they don't have to want it, they can ignore it if they like but they should at least have access to it. Agreed, absolutely. Well returning to the topic of your book which was fantastic, um, absolutely you. loved it, lived up to all my expectations based on your previous book and um, gave me even more feelings and one that's of what things, I was aiming for yes. all the feelings <laughs> what more could you want nothing at all literally zero I um, did the wonder because obviously you've decided rather than taking one woman you haven't gone for I'm going to tell Penelope's story I'm going to tell Andromache's story you thought there are all these women um, they've all been affected in different ways um, but was there one woman in particular who you were particularly fascinated by Oh, that's a difficult one. You'll make um, each his favourite. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel really. I do feel really bad about it. I, to, when I when I sold this book to to Pan Macmillan, um, I did it with a page. I know you're not supposed to tell these stories because it makes everyone feel sick. To be fair, they had already bought Jocasta. Yes. Um, and they wanted to know what my next book would be, and they said, "Can you write us a page about what the next book would be?" And I was like, "Yeah." So it's gonna be like, um, it's like the straight line is the present tense, and it's just after the fall of Troy, and then there's a causation timeline that goes backwards, and a consequences timeline that goes forwards, and it changes perspective for each chapter. Okay? And they went, "Yes." <laughs> yeah, they must have lost their minds to trust me with we'll it. Believe but it's it when like we read holding it. the whole thing together yeah. was quite a challenge. I, I. It's very hard for me to argue mm. against Penelope because mm. her letters to Odysseus, which are obviously um, inspired by Ovid's Herodes, yeah. his letters from abandoned women to their those. absent uh, husbands yeah. and menfolk, um, and they were enormous fun to write. Because yeah. Of course, she gets crosser and crosser as the book goes on because it takes him 10 years yeah. to get home. And I love that development that you worked into them. Yeah, she just gets more and more yeah. It was a lot of fun doing the audio book <laughs> recording of that. But my heart, yeah, my head says Penelope because I had the most fun writing her. Mm. My heart says Cassandra every, okay. every time, all day long. I wondered, like, as a reader, I felt like I was seeing the author or feeling closest to the author when I was reading Calliope's perspectives, the nymphs, and I wondered if she mm. was a voice for you to kind of express your motivations. Yes, a little bit she is. Yeah. I think I probably, she's a little bit... She's a little bit naughtier than I am, I think. I'm probably closer to Penelope, okay. I would say, out of the two of them. The, the sort of unbelievably raised eyebrow of like, now what? That's <laughs> that Penelope has, that's definitely yeah. me. Uh, but yeah, Calliope, I'm not sure. She's so, um, she's fearless of consequences mm. and that's not quite in my nature. But yeah, she's got a kind of righteous snark, which yeah. I would definitely claim. 
Did you have to sort of approach writing from the sort of gods, titans, nymphs pers perspective differently from yes. how you approach the humans? Absolutely. So the gods, as I'm sure you noticed, um, are much, sound much more contemporary yeah. than the humans, the mortals, um, <laughs> because I figured, well, they last forever. So mm. their language is going to evolve over time in the same way that anything that lasts thousands and thousands of years would. So they, I wanted them to slightly feel slightly more current and slightly mm -hmm. more punchy. Um, and uh, conversely, I think the stories which are set sort of firmly in the Bronze Age sound a bit more Bronze Agey. Yeah. That was the theory. Yeah. Okay. I, no, I, li I, I like the idea of sort of thinking of different narrative voices to sort of distinguish between them. So even yeah. if you don't, aren't as familiar with the gods and the mortals before going into it, you can quickly tell in their tone who's yes, who. Yes, I hope so, yeah. yeah. Was there anyone that was more difficult to characterise? Um, yeah, I mean, oh, it's, it is hard. I found, I found Hecabe very much harder to mm. write than I thought I would because I wrote my dissertation on Medea and Hecabe, um, oh. uh, women who kill children in <laughs> Euripides. Yeah. <laughs> joy, joy, joy. Um, and so I thought, oh, well, I know so much about it already and I kind of, as always with those texts that you've looked at so closely, and in Greek particularly, you think, oh, well, I know this person from the inside out already, mm -hmm. but she's so difficult to kind of get a bead on. So I found her much harder than I thought I would. I found Clytemnestra much easier than I thought I would. Mm. Uh, I thought it would be the other way around. Um, and actually, I liked her tons. And I don't feel like I ever really, really understood Helen. I found mm. her so... Um, other. Yeah, well, I, I found reading the book that it felt like of all the women, she was almost the least She's the um, furthest there. Away. Yeah. yeah, she is the furthest away. Because the more you kind of look at her, the more you realise that we're not entitled to her. Mm. You know, that she sort of, that the versions of Helen that exist in so many readings of her. Uh, she's totally again. This is a perfect example of somebody yeah. changing through time, not in the ancient Absolutely. world, but in the in the later world. I was about to say modern world about Marlowe, but you know what <laughs> I mean. So you know, in uh, Euripides' play Helen, Euripides' um, Trojan Women, yeah. she is incredibly articulate. Mm -hmm. You know, this, the, the sort of legal defence she gives in the Trojan Women is one of the best speeches that Euripides yeah. writes, I think. Um, She's super articulate, she's super cool, she knows everything, she lists things out, she's so... There's no way Menelaus is her equal. I mean, you just pity the man, it's like you can't get anywhere near her, and yeah. you never will. And then by the time we get to Faustus mm. by Marlowe, she's literally mute. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well done everyone, progress! <laughs> I mean, even in a lot of, I feel like, modern screen adaptations, she's definitely dumbed down a little bit. Yeah, she plays absolutely. a bit of a stereotype. Absolutely, because we're so focused on her being the most beautiful woman mm. to ever live, we don't notice how, how smart she yeah. is. And in the end, I really wanted to include, there was uh, there were a couple of stories I wanted to include that I couldn't. Yeah. One, of course, was Dido from mm, before Aeneas. And I just, I could not find a way to make it not feel forced in for yeah. my benefit. So I had to let, I very reluctantly <laughs> had to let it go. Um, and the other was Helen's um, ending, as it were, from the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Because when Telemachus visits Sparta, looking for his missing father, his still absent father, in the Odyssey, then he finds Menelaus and Helen back together. And as far as we can tell, it may happen every night, she basically drugs him with rohypnol in order to stop him from being upset about the war. And you're like, I don't, 
I w in a way, I'd like to tell this story, but I have no yeah. idea how to make it not sound mental. Yeah, where do you start with that? It's like, oh yeah, so what happens to a sheep? Sort of becomes a kind of drug peddler. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it is just very yeah. strange. And I, in the end, I was... I, I, too much to say. I, I felt like it couldn't be put in casually and I didn't yeah. want to make a thing of it. And so in the end, I thought it's actually much more plausible that my version of Calliope yeah. would just be like, oh, screw her. I mean, we're not doing her. I'm done. I'm done with her now. Well, it's um, quite a unique perspective in a way because often the Trojan War is sold as this war about Helen of Troy. It is this war that launched a thousand ships because absolutely. of this one woman and yet you have shown that it's actually a war about so many women. Yes, absolutely. And I really, I think the kind of case in point of this is that you know, when Paris and Helen elope from Sparta, when she becomes Helen of Troy rather yeah. than Helen of Sparta, it, you know, all of us know that she abandons her husband, abandons mm. Menelaus, and literally nobody knows, pretty much, rounding down to the nearest nobody, <laughs> that Paris abandons his wife. Yes. Or and only. Yeah. And it's just, she just literally is forgotten from the story. She's just edited straight out. And you go, wait, I, excuse me. <laughs> Menelaus declares war, you know, launches a thousand ships. Oinoni brings up their son quietly and nicely. It's like if you were looking for two different responses to the same humiliation, yeah. which are so heavily gendered, mm -hmm. then there they are right there. And I thought, well, you know what? We've heard plenty about Menelaus being a hero. Although even in the Iliad, he isn't very heroic, no. actually. We're at every stage encouraged to think by Homer that the Greeks think he's a pretty rubbish fighter. Yeah. Um, and that they are like, oh yeah, yeah, go and have a duel with Paris, good luck with that, let's see who wins, I don't know, might be going home tomorrow, I haven't decided. Um, and, and yet we see him as a hero because what? Because yeah. he's the man. Yeah. And, you know, Oinoni... Only... wins, kind yeah. of. <laughs> and, and as Aphrodite intercedes, yeah. Um, and there's Oinoni, you know, doing this incredible, quiet, yeah. heroic act of bringing up a child. And we, that, that bit is just edited from view. And, you know, well, that's no longer acceptable to me. It's time to change. Yes, and now people can read that story as well. I love that. There were so many like little stories in here about women that just don't have, say, like a whole play dedicated to them. Right. And it was so nice to have like them have their moment in this book, which right. is what it felt like. Yeah, no, it felt like it writing them too. And I thought... Actually, when I gave the first draft to my editor, I thought, oh, they're bound to say that there's just too many voices. Mm. It's just, you know, people are going to struggle to keep up. And, you know, you're going to have to cut stories that don't have kind of through... Yeah. You know, you have to cut Laodomia or Penthesilea. And actually, they were they were somebody's favourite. All, all yeah. the women that I thought they would ask me to get rid of were someone's favourite. So I'm like, oh, okay, well... That's oh. a good way to do it. As long as you can get somebody to fall in love with each person, then nobody can cut anyone. Turns <laughs> out. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was going to ask you a little bit about what sources you use, but you've already dropped quite a few names of pieces of ancient literature. Yeah, loads of them. My God. Yeah, no, that took... But that was really good fun, actually. So you you may have noticed that, for example, when we come across... I don't want to give away too much of the <laughs> later part of the book, but since some of it's told backwards yes. in time... <laughs> um, but when we come across Themis, who is the mm. goddess of divine order, um, her outfit is entirely chosen um, from a beautiful piece of, of pottery, an absolutely beautiful painting, which is from, I think, the 5th century BCE. Is it stags or deer? Yeah, or like, across yeah. the dress. And it's like, well, that can't be right, can it? But that's exactly what she's wearing. Okay. So I just nicked it. Um, and the way she's sitting on a tripod, that that's stolen wholesale from the yeah. from the pieces. So sometimes it was um, a text, and sometimes it was an artwork. So Amazing. Even um, Thetis, who is Achilles' mother, mm. um, her earrings I stole um, from the British Museum, 
uh, not in full Thomas Crown affair fashion, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, they're nicked, and they're they're from the they were found on the island where um, yeah. Thetis and Peleus get married. So there was a lot of this going. I mean, it's literally just there for me, yeah. I think, and probably like a curator of the museum and two other classicists. But I think so long as I love that level of detail. Nice. You like you wonder. I, I well, I say I wonder because I was about to say like. In a few years' time, people could be writing, you know, dissertations on your books. But I actually teach a little bit at the university, and a few of my students did presentations on the children of Jocasta. Oh my goodness! Yeah, they had to look at. <laughs> so they all had to look at a myth and yeah. a version of that myth, and it could be an ancient version or a modern version. And two of them picked the children of Jocasta, and it was so That's so interesting. They did real deep dives. And lovely. <laughs> so you oh, you've well, got then the rewarded myth. those people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those people are really gonna. Uh, have They've the got time. some stuff to like sit down and just like pick at, which right. is like what every scholar wants to do, right? It's like Easter eggs, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? So exactly. I think that's the um, phrase I mean. But yeah. yeah, even you probably noticed too that um, when Laodomia has her kind of dream about Protesilaus, her husband, um, about to jump off his ship at Troy, that's a statue. Yeah. Uh, that's a real statue, and his feet are so beautiful. <laughs> and when I gave the, I gave an early draft to a male friend to read through. <laughs> so he got about a third of the way through. He's like, "Are you obsessed with feet?" I'm like, "I don't know what you want me to say." There's, sometimes that's all there is left of a statue is the foot. Sometimes there's no foot. Definitely no nose, but yeah, so I tried not to be too fixated on feet, but there are some really nice feet in Greek statuary. I don't yeah. know what you want from me. Yep, you, and you've shown the appreciation. Because exactly. you, you talk about Themis' feet, feet as well, so, don't you? Yeah, yeah no, I've got like horrible that. feet, so I'm obsessed with other people having nice feet. They have Amazing. mangled their toes from running too far. <laughs> Incredible. I love it. This is like adding whole new layers for me. <laughs> um, I, it's always like... I always find whenever you interview someone or just like watch or read an interview with somebody, you just want to go back and read the book afterwards. Yeah, you're like, yeah. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that the first time, but yes. Yeah. Um, well, I do always ask the same thing of everybody that's on the podcast, and is that that is for them to pick one book to recommend to everyone listening, aside from obviously A Thousand Ships, which they should all go and read, um, but something that has some loose string to your book, whether it be an ancient book, a modern book, that you would just say go off and read alongside? Oh, I guess I would like everybody to read Homer. I'd like everyone <laughs> to read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Okay. Um, and I think of those two, the Odyssey is probably the more... Accessible? Fun, yeah. open one. Um, and so I probably would go with the Odyssey. I'm yeah. going to go with Homer's Odyssey. Okay. And if you want a modern book, Edith Hall's Introducing the Greeks. Okay, yeah. Edith Hall is like a, like a big name in yes. the classics. Yeah. If you've, if you've not read Edith Hall, you should read some Edith Hall. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure. It's been wonderful. But yeah, I'm, again, I'm like going to go home and be like looking things up now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really hoping that next year some of my students do presentations on this one. <laughs> I am too, and then I want to see them. Yeah. I'll come and heckle. <laughs> That's not what I meant. I know, it, help? No. <laughs> I know at least one of my students uh, that was uh, second year who will be going into her third year Robin um, listens to the podcast and she had used the interview that we did for the Pan Macmillan channel as one of her sources for her presentation on your book. Fantastic. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure this is. So Robin, do a presentation on a thousand shows. Yeah, come on Robin, sort it out. I'll give you <laughs> secret answers if that helps. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Amazing. Thanks.